Hi, and welcome to episode 185 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Laura Glazebrook joining us. Laura is a pelvic health physical therapist and scoliosis specialist with a special interest in craniofacial development and airway concerns. In both her personal health journey and her clinical experience, she began seeing connections between ENT history, oral tethers, and development of scoliosis. She's now collecting data from her patients with scoliosis to determine any trends. Dr. Laura earned her doctorate of physical therapy at the University of North Georgia and began her career specializing in neurological injuries, including spinal cord and brain injuries. She assisted in the development of a groundbreaking bowel and bladder clinic for the Multiple Sclerosis Institute at the Shepherd Center and works at part of the interdisciplinary treatment team. She's also on her own airway journey, undergoing adult expansion and preparing for her second frenuloplasty and is the proud mama of two tethered kiddos. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Real quick, if you're listening to this the week of October 17th, 2022, the doors to themyomembership.com are now open. Join us between October 17th and October 23rd, go before doors close, to themyomembership.com where you can get monthly continuing education units for ASHA and AOTA. You can also get past CEUs as well, study club, lots of marketing materials, and so much more in a safe learning environment where colleagues elevate each other. Come on and join us at themyomembership.com before doors close on October 23rd. Laura, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to dive into our conversation today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So I know that we are going to chat about all kinds of fun things today, but I would love for you to start with your your experience, like maybe a little bit about your history and if you're willing to go into, you know, your son's history and journey. Um, I think it's always fun to dive into like, you know, either how you got into this in the first place or what journey you're on now. Absolutely. Um, I am all in the, I'm learning that my whole family probably has airway issues. So um, background on me, my story really started when I was 11 years old. Um, I was diagnosed with scoliosis um, at, I think it was just a, a well visit. They took me for, of course, x-rays to um, what is now Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, which they have a fantastic orthopedic team. So it was really great. Um, so I did the typical, okay, we'll check in again in six months. And by the time they did that six month scan, they said, holy cow, she needs surgery. Um, if I remember correctly, my parents said that, or he said that I had a 57 degree Cobb angle. So as a frame of reference, um, you know, zero degrees of, and that's like the angle that they measure on the x-ray, um, zero degrees is normal. Anything over 10 degrees, they send you to an orthopedist and the current guidelines for scoliosis is anything over 46 degrees is automatically surgical. Um, so yeah, the, um, doctor that saw me said it was 
didn't say it to me, thank God, but um, to my parents, he says this is one of the quickest progressions I've ever seen. So that's great. Um, <laughs> a little nerve-wracking uh, for a parent to receive yeah. that kind of information, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, so what I had... Did you, have, did you have any, like, knowledge of, like, what was going on? Or, like, did you understand, like, what information they were delivering or you were just kind of you were too young and oh no it's um I think that one of the challenges now like what well, I'll get into in a second but now when I work with my patients with scoliosis I I really feel like my knowledge is power and I feel like that's an element that I'm sure in the myo space as well that there's not a lot of great education out there for people so I literally talk all day long and I would rather over educate than anything but all I remember is um you know, I don't have a lot of huge memories of, you know, of course I have those memories of the surgery, but I remember being at that appointment with my mother where the doctor told me that we would have to have surgery. And I remember just being this 11 year old kid that wanted to, you know, try to be brave, but I literally like collapsed and wept silently into my mom's lap. Just like, what is this thing? Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I had a spinal fusion surgery. Um, at 11, I never really had many issues, even though I do have a severe curve. Um, fast forward, there there were some red flags apparently for the fact that I had some, you know, airway or oral function issues um, that I kind of feel like is related to this whole journey. Um, for instance, I had a really hard time swallowing pills. Um, I needed speech therapy, and this was back, you know, in the 90s, and they did just the typical articulation. Um, I did a traditional orthodontic expansion of, as far as to my memory, just the upper jaw. And I think that's going to play into, I don't know how common that is. I don't have much of a history in it, but I remember having a retainer on my upper jaw, but nothing on the lower jaw. Yeah. That was um, very common. I think when we were growing up, cause I also oh only God. had like rapid palate expansion on my upper, nothing on the lower. I think that the belief, and I think some people still are of this belief that the lower jaw will follow the upper jaw. <laughs> I, I'm like, I haven't yeah. really seen that happen, but I mean, who, anyways, I know right. jaws are shrinking, right? And it's a whole, right. a whole but oh yeah. 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 James Nestor's book was like a gateway drug for me with this whole thing. It, it just was a confluence with everything that started with my daughter. And I just, I fell into the rabbit hole and I've not made my way, my way back out. <laughs> um, but fast forward. So I, you know, grew up with fine. I did okay. Um, I've had two kids. I became a physical therapist. I um, started working in like the neurologic population, but after my first son, like I got into pelvic health and um, just found out how amazingly connected the body is to start. You know, that's when I started learning about this connection between our diaphragm and our pelvic floor and our TMJ, like our jaw muscles and how everything worked together. Um, my daughter was born a month into the pandemic. Oh, God. <laughs> that was so great. Um, and she she had a lot of issues, uh, just, you know, really difficult calming. She wanted to nurse all the time. Luckily, I am blessed to have had the privilege of knowing a fantastic, you know, TOTS trained um, lactation consultant. Mm. Talked with her. I learned so much about tethered oral tissues and all of that. 
So that's when I started learning about, oh, wow, like this is a whole thing. And it talked about how, you know, when the tongue can't rest up there, the vagus nerve is inactivated. And so the kid can't calm. And then of course she's not eating efficiently and whole thing. So um, we started her journey with, um, you know, I've learned bits and pieces along the way. The first provider just flipped the tie and no therapy before after which now it's like a physical therapist i'm like wow <laughs> why did i not think about that well you know as new moms also like give yourself some grace like not new moms like oh you've gosh. had other children but as soon oh as we gosh. have a baby no matter if it's our first second or third i feel like our therapy brains like our professional brains just literally turn off and everything oh. i feel like i knew i was like okay well i know my child has a tie but the rest just went out the window I know. Well, thank you for saying that. I feel like too, there's such a, cause your nervous system is hyped, right? Cause you have this kid that's not sleeping, like wants to, you know, it's literally screaming all the time and you're like, anything fight or flight. Yeah. Everyone's in fight or flight. It's like survival mode. So you're really not like focused on like the clinical side of like, well, what would oh. we do in this situation? If I was working with a patient who you're like, no, nope, somebody help. Yeah. 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 Uh, but the good news is I've learned a lot in the meantime. Um, but the, the short story is my, um, my daughter has since like, she did OT, she did craniosacral. She got a second release. She's doing pretty well. Like she's still nursing at night, um, which I kind of want to cut out but at the same time. I'm like, but the oral motor development, <laughs> um, I and I learned that my son who is five has the same issues, probably all the same ties, but he was just a chiller kid. And so I didn't know any better. And so he just got supplemented with formula and was fine. Um, anyway, so I have him in expanders already. He had a, a tie release. He, we, we're in this journey with him. I'm in my own journey, um, where I started learning that I was, um, starting to have bite changes, more pressure on the right side. Um, part of that I chalked up to the scoliosis, but then I was like, this is strange. So I started in my own airway journey. Um, and that's been a bit of a roller coaster. So <laughs> Um, but by listening to, I mean, I love your podcast. I have all of these like airway podcasts on my, on my feed. Um, but between that and just all of the mistakes I've made in myself, um, I have a lot more information. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I think that there are best teachers. They really are. I feel like my, my own, goodness. I, I tell everyone, I'm like, I was doing feeding therapy and it's so funny. Like I started in the schools and it wasn't until I worked, I mean, I did start and I got like thrown right away into like working with some very medically complex children um, in mm -hmm. the public schools, but it was, I started working with children on the spectrum and I was like, wow, like these, there's a lot of similarities and patterns and like, why is it that mm -hmm. they tend to cut out their foods and they start to food jag and they really have patterns and like colors and textures and what is going on? And I, you know, I'm like, are there vitamin deficiencies? Is it, you know, is there this gut brain connection thing? I was really looking, I was looking at like the gaps diet and this SCD lifestyle diet and all these different things, trying to make sense of like, what was going on with these kids just to have an understanding for myself. And as I got further into it and have, then I had my own children, I was working mostly with like toddlers on up had my first child seven, you know, just over seven years ago. And she's the one who threw me deep into the rabbit hole of tots. Mm. When I realized she had, you know, I didn't know in the, for, until she was two years old, that that's what was mm. going on, even though I saw specialists and, um, but just to see everything that she went through and certain things that seemed to be like, she was seemed to be advanced in her gross motor skills. 
but mm. I now realize she was also just like really tense. Like my kids yeah. could at birth and you know my second one was not as tense as the first one but could also hold her neck up at birth but well tense in a different way not really it's hard <laughs> you know like she was the kid who dragged one leg we took her to pt ended up going to cranial you know craniosacral therapy yeah. and osteopath and um anywho so uh, yeah i mean it's just so interesting to see like how it carries out and manifests like the same issue but differently in two children mm. and yes. Yeah, I'm like knowledge is power. Like they have, they have been my best teachers. Like obviously all my patients too, but like just living with them and seeing the changes and mm-hmm. still being on a journey with both of them at four and a half and seven years of age and having gone through, oh. you know, expansion myself. I'm like, whew, like it's, it is, I can't imagine not having access to the information the way that I did. As you, like you said, it's just in healthcare. I feel like knowledge for parents it's so hard to come by. And then when you do get mm-hmm. to different professionals and everybody says something different, you're like, well, who do I listen to? You're saying this, they're saying that, or two people are saying mm-hmm. this, three people are saying that. And you know, it's, it is hard. Parenting is hard. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It is abysmal. Um, part of, so I actually, I have like a website and I've started a blog with sort of the idea of having just something that is searchable for just some information on. So now I also do scoliosis specific PT um, called the Schroth method, which you may be familiar with. He talked about it a little bit and James Nestor talked about it in his book a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I feel like there's not a lot of information on anything. And of course you go to Google or WebMD and it's, it's mind boggling and it's all negative and it's not, you know, empowering at all. So it's, it's so frustrating. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that's, that's why I feel like what you're doing and the things that like just getting the information out there for people to hear is so important. Yeah, no, I agree. I love that you have a website. So is that, um, the Dr. Laura Great Blades book, Blazebrook website? We'll put it in the yes. show notes because I'm like, yes, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Laura Blazebrook. No, I couldn't say that before. Um, So we will make sure that's in the show notes, drlauraglazebrook.com. And so, yeah, let's, let's dive in a bit into like some, so you're a PT, right? So um, let's talk about like some of your theories or like what you see in practice. Like, cause I love to, I love to hear things from viewpoints um, of other professionals in this space that have kind of like also fallen into the airway realm like I tell people, like one of my most favorite memories is just sitting around the table with like my team pre-pandemic and looking, all looking at the same case and Mm. having like the PT who's also an osteopath and his, you know, his wife, who's an osteopath and the OT and the RDH. And, you know, I was a speech myo and then the airway Mm -hmm. dentist. And then there was the oral surgeon, there was a vision therapist. And we all were sitting around the table together, passing the computer around, looking at images, talking about the case. And everybody had such different like perspectives and input, but it was, they were all Mm -hmm. such important pieces to the puzzle to really figure out how to best proceed with the case. Mm -hmm. And so I love like- That sounds lovely. As a patient that's that's going through this, that sounds like a dream. (laughs) Dream. Um, But yeah, I mean, so I, yeah, I'm curious to know, like in terms of like tethered tissues and airway and how, you know, and even going into the whole scoliosis, I know we've now gone down a whole rabbit hole, but you know- (laughs) The connection, like your theories, what do you see um, in these patients? Oh, oh my goodness. So um, I am a bit of a research nerd and I just, I love, I'm just learning how interconnected everything is. So like I mentioned, I'm a physical therapist. I, I got my doctorate in 2012. So I've been practicing for 10 years. 
I just started noticing as I started taking these different courses, you know, I've done a little bit of PRI, I've done public health training, I've done a, a whole gamut of things. And I'm just learning how interconnected everything is. Um, and I had a fantastic mentor in um, pelvic health that she started really bringing up that, that connection between the jaw and the pelvic floor. So if somebody has TMJ issues or, you know, grinding, clenching and grinding with stress, well, they're probably also clenching their pelvic floor. I started noticing in these patients that I would ask them in their intake, okay, you know, do you have TMJ issues? Um, and if they'd say, you know, right versus left, I'd be able to palpate differences in their pelvic floor muscles and see that they had more tension in the pelvic floor on that corresponding side. Same thing with breathing. Um, but it all goes back to, so if you look at like the airway stuff, tethered oral tissue, scoliosis, it actually all starts in utero. It starts um, at an embryonic level, which to me is, I mean, I, it's surprising, but it's not surprising. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. like when you think about Dr. Baxter and his, his theories on, um, or at least the ones that he spoke about, um, the at 12 weeks gestation. So, you know, at like a little teeny tiny ball of cells, you, there's a lack of cutting those um, tissues. You know, there's a lack of the apoptosis where like that, that little tie gets snipped. Um, and even in the scoliosis world, there are, there was a, fantastic paper in 2016 where they talked about the same thing embryonic like they noticed that there was just differences between how like the bone cells like the osteoblasts and the fat cells and how tension in the nervous system can lead to some more of that like they call it asynchronous neuroosseous growth but essentially there's tension in the nervous system that causes asymmetrical growth um, of the spinal uh, segments and that leads to scoliosis so um, I'm sure you also know as well. So kiddos with, um, with that same kind of tension will lead to like torticollis. There is a huge um, link between torticollis and scoliosis. Um, so I, all of that, I love all of that. So I, of course, like when I evaluate pelvic floor, but also specifically for the scoliosis people that I see, like people with scoliosis, I've noticed that, um, just everybody loves to hear about how, how this happens in our bodies. And it's the piece that nobody talks about. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my, my PRI PT, like that I had in Maryland, I would literally lay on the table and like, he would just like, tell me everything. And like, it was all, you know, very anatomy, physiology based. And he's like, I can't mm -hmm. talk to most patients like this. Like most patients it's like, you know, he's like, I tell them what I'm doing and why I'm doing it as I'm do like going through it and everything. He's like, but our conversations were like next level because I was like, okay. Oh yeah. Connected to that and this and that. And he was, you know, talking about different theories and things that they're seeing. And I was like, this is, it's so fascinating. And, you know, to your mm -hmm. point, right. We don't, First of all, we don't talk enough about like typical in utero development. That's something that like we've made a point of talking about that in my feeding course that I teach um, and feed the peds because I was like, okay, some people talk about like traditional development, but it usually focuses on like once you're out of the womb. So mm -hmm. we need to from conception and talk about what happens over, you know, the pregnancy and through, you know, the um, in utero with the infant's development, because also around that 12 week, 12 and a half week in utero, you know, in gestation point, that's also when we start swallowing. So, yep. yeah, uh, you know, so <laughs> apoptosis hasn't happened and hi, we've got tethered tissues. 
and it can happen throughout the body. It's not just in the you know oral cavity. We then can also develop a swallow that we're compensating from day one. And so mm-hmm. it's, you know, they talk about babies having like hiccups in the womb. Why? You know, and they say, oh, it's normal for babies to have hiccups in the womb. Like, yeah. yep. Both children, both children. I, yep. I made the mistake. I asked the OB about it. Had no, like, oh, we don't know. I, I made the mistake of going on to Google <laughs> and how the, the number of things that I saw that said things like, oh, it's, it's a, it's a cardiac issue. And of course, then you get into the scary place in your head. Um, but no, yeah. yeah. Learning, learning now about like the swallow and how it's all affected. I'm like, you know, I wish someone would have just told me that, you know, it was something to look out for, but maybe giving me something between, you know, your child has a cardiac issue and, oh, it's You're fine. Really all fine. kids have <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, we find everyone- the middle ground. <laughs> all babies do that. So you just don't notice. They're like, I mean, that was, I was literally told like all babies do that. Some people just don't notice it or don't Uh, feel it. Like that's totally normal. And I'm thinking like, but how do you know? How do you know that's uh, normal? What tells you that's normal? And then I realized, no, my, my, because Mia did it a little bit. My second, my first did it a lot more. And Mm. she also was a kiddo who was like, that colicky witching hour and be on an angle after feeds and always wanted to be on me breastfeeding and really tight, mm-hmm. early gross motor skills and, you know, mm-hmm. held her head up at birth, you know, and everyone's like, oh, your kids have such strong heads and necks. And by the second one, I was like, yep. no, 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 here we go again. Like the I first know. time I was like, oh, it's amazing. Like she was a kid. <laughs> I've talked about in the podcast, like she would literally at like the little gym, crawl up a rock wall at like seven months by herself. Seven, Holy eight, cow. Like, and then like, I would be there to like spot her, but she could like get her little body around to like slide on the other side. Like I taught her at six months how to get off, um, like a very low sitting couch, like on our deck outside. And she took that and turned it into crawling up the stairs, like within a day and then was able like within like, I don't know, because I taught her how to get off like backwards down that couch. She like Mm -hmm. by seven months was crawling down the stairs. And Mm. And I was like, I mean, I didn't know any better. So I was just like, like, of course. Yeah. And then my second one, I was like, okay, she didn't crawl until after she walked and until after she saw like craniosacral therapist and osteopath. And they basically kind of got everything aligned the way it should. She stopped Mm -hmm. dragging me. And yeah, I just, I remember that like a week after she walked, she like crawled across the couch, which is not a stable environment. And I was like, what? And like crossing midline, everything was like, you know, symmetrical. And I'm like, what is going on? I was like, okay, all right. It's exciting. She's crawling. And my husband's like, what does it matter? She can walk. I'm like, oh, it matters. <laughs> Everything's integrated. Oh, I, I got so irritated at my, um, I, my daughter, I thought she was going to skip crawling altogether. And of course, as a PT, I was like, oh no, <laughs> you're going to crawl. <laughs> doesn't matter what you say, you know, CDC crawling is important. <laughs> I know. I'm just going to push you down on the floor. It's okay, baby. Go get that. Oh no, don't get up on your feet. <laughs> crawl. Gosh. Um, but yeah, so I, um, all of that to say, I've noticed that, um, I, in my journey, I had a tongue tie release, um, and it turns out that this was what started me thinking, well, I should start looking at this link. Cause I see a lot of scoliosis patients. Like I work in a practice where we teach, you know, adults, teenagers, kids, scoliosis exercises. There's a lot of evidence behind them. One of the things that I started noticing was, I would ask about ENT history and I noticed that there was, and of course this is still a limiting 
uh, factor. I think at some point when I have time and money for more courses, I would like to be trained in how to assess oral motor function because a lot of times maybe they do have history, maybe they do have a tongue tie or maybe they do have some of these issues and they just aren't aware of them. But um, I started noticing that some of the kiddos that I would see, they did have a history of a tongue tie or they have had a lot of ENT procedures. And now they're coming in at, you know, 11, 14 with scoliosis. Mm. Um, so for my five-year-old, I, I had a feeling, I knew just statistically when I had fusion at 11, there were probably signs of scoliosis when I was much younger that nobody knew what to look for. I am for better or worse a specialist now. So I was watching my son. I started to see it at four and a half and I was like, oh no. Um, so anyway, I've, I started to just include on my intake forms, just literally all of those. So I would be specific history of ENT follow-up, um, frequent ear infections, uh, tethered or remote, you know, tongue tie or lip tie, um, adenoid and tonsil removal. And so I'm just collecting data on how many people are coming in with both <laughs> and seeing what I can do. Cause I think there's more info in the airway space about this, but in the scoliosis research, it's still not very well um, delineated. So I think part of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make those connections so that hopefully more people will start to make that connection. Because especially as you know, there's these periods of growth where we are trying to do everything we can to work on the symmetry. And if we're only working at the spine, when there's something higher up or when it's an airway issue, it's not going to fix the problem. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I mean, it's like you said, like everything is so interconnected. And, um, I remember when I was talking to Ron Ruska and we were like, he was talking about, he was like saying like, we've got ties like throughout our body, like there are body mm -hmm. ties. It's not just, you know, in the oral cavity. And I was like, Oh, well, that makes sense, you know, and, mm -hmm. but, you know, when we look at the airway and how all of our airway based, you know, organs are functioning and we start to address things on a deeper level and we start to look at, you know, why are we asymmetrical? Why are we not, you know, mm -hmm. using everything to its full capacity? Um, that was really eye-opening to me. And, you know, I think the work, like you said, your PR, you've taken some PRI courses. I just think that some of the courses like that they're doing over there, it's just, they're so informational. I feel like every, anybody and anybody working with pediatrics should be taking those courses. Yeah. Cause it just, it's eye-opening and it at least alerts you to be like, oh, hey, maybe I should refer this child for an evaluation because I have concerns about X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z, right? Whether it's to like a PRI trained PT or they're going to OT or speech, you know, for airway issues, feeding issues, you know, whatever the case mm -hmm. may be. It's just, it's very, the whole thing is just very, um, we treat in silos, right? In the United States of America. Exactly. And exactly. It's harmful. When, you know, when, when doctors enter into a space where they, you know, this whole do no harm, well, why are we not collaborating more? I know the answer. I know it's monetary based. I know it's insurance driven, but at the end of the day, we're only helping patients become sicker because we're putting a bandaid on symptoms instead of working together to find the root cause. Right. And if we could truly jump into a different model of care where we, you know, can sit together and I'll talk about the patients in front of us for more than maybe like 20 seconds. I know they do like, you know, rounds and, and then they have meetings and mm -hmm. hospitals and stuff like that, but in private clinics, it's harder. You know, I know that it's just, yeah. 
but it's something we can do if we choose to. But we also have to build that into our, our working day. And sometimes that comes at an expense because either it's something that you can't bill to insurance and or our fees have to reflect the time that we're spending on patient cases outside of actually being face-to-face with them, which I know in a private you know, pay situation, it, it increases fees for patients on the front end. So it's, yep. you know, it's like, that's that, it always comes back to money. I'm like, if that's really the yeah. biggest thing. It really does. And that's why I feel like there's, I'm so glad to hear there are some treatment centers that are coming together. Like I know here in Atlanta, we have a couple of multidisciplinary, like kind of airway focused places. Cause I know, especially for me, when I was, when I had this itty bitty baby that was struggling so badly at the height of the pandemic, (laughs) I had a really hard time trying to get in front of the right people. And, you know, I I had a a toddler at home. I had a three-year-old and just, I wasn't sleeping and I was feeling terrible and it was just so maddening. And I realized the amount of privilege that I have of kind of having the right people to at least give me the information of this is what you need to look for. And that information can just be so hard to find. And I think to your point of the um, working in silos, that is a huge, that is a huge problem I'm finding as well is because there is a little, people are aware of overlap between certain areas that they're not connecting the whole body. So for instance, one of my favorite, I don't know if you're familiar with anatomy trains. Uh It's a, um, yeah. So um, talking about just how, Mm -hmm. yeah, how the fascia and the muscles will literally connect head to toe to support us in different planes. And there's, there has been research on, for instance, between like the muscles in the jaw and the pelvic floor. So they have done research and they've used like real-time ultrasound to be able to visualize what someone's pelvic floor is doing when they're humming or when they're talking at a low tone versus when they're speaking at a higher tone or yelling. So there is information available for certain regions, but it's like the whole body is not being connected. And I mean, I know you've mentioned it before, but evidence is so far behind practice and I think one of the issues, at least in the PT world, is everyone's like, well, we need the evidence. And I'm like, well, someone needs to collect the evidence. (laughs) Right. Well, that's an issue, I think, in all of our fields, right? Like, I know in ENT, it's like hard for ENTs in the airway space to step out and like truly, you know, promote themselves as like these airway centric. I know they don't like to call them that, but like these airway forward ENTs who are looking at airway differently than like what they're traditionally Mm -hmm. trained to look at because they get ridiculed. And, you know, and I know that that's true. I know that there's like this big divide in like the speech world, like it's 50, Mm -hmm. I joke, I don't know for real if it's 50, 50 split, but I say it's 50, 50 split. You've got the people who are like, we know that it's important, but the EBP triangle also includes experience. And mm-hmm. patient, you know, like what are the patient's goals? What are the patient's concerns? You know, that's equally as important as that research-based evidence as well. We need to consider all of it, but at the same time, understanding, like you said, research tends to be about 17 years behind. And mm-hmm. there are certain things that either can't truly be researched the way that they need to be in order to like apply it to practice. Like when working with infants, for example, like it's- yep things are just unethical that will never get passed by an R- R- um, IRB board and, or mm-hmm. just, they just can't be done. But at the same time, there is a lot of other research that is being done and we are starting mm-hmm. to get more information, you know, published. Um, but it's going to take, it's going to take time. It's going to take so long. And, you know, I find that the therapists who are critical thinkers who can 
take mm-hmm. what is out there, take research that's being done that maybe isn't published yet, but also like you're doing, like my intake is long and it's long <laughs> because I, and it's, I'm like, we put it all, we finally like five years ago, put it like up in our EMR so that the patients can like click through it instead of like doing it on paper and everything. But it's long because we're taking an extensive history and we look at patterns too. And we notice things and mm-hmm. people ask things like, well, why do you have like a question about whether or not they can ride a bike on your intake? Like your speech, your mm. speech OT, like you're not PT. And I'm like, because it's all interconnected. These kiddos who have trouble with balance, who have, mm-hmm. you know, like we see patterns and it just checking that box. Yes or no for a five-year-old can tip us off into having a very different conversation. You know, the same way that we ask sometimes if kids ate their first birthday cake, you're coming to us for mm-hmm. feeding therapy. We're like, well, why'd you ask if they ate their first birthday cake? You know, well, some kids who like my daughter, who seemed to be okay with all of everything feeding. And for the most part, like wasn't really showing a ton of like, you know, sensory processing things that would like tip us off at age one, she would not touch her birthday cake. It was very, very interesting. And then around mm-hmm. like 15 months or so, she started to become really picky. Um, we started to see yep. like, she didn't like how tags felt on, she didn't like how the seams on socks felt like just, it was like one of those early signs that like, it might mean nothing, but in the overall picture right. else, maybe it was there a little bit earlier and we just didn't notice it and it's been there all along. And so there's like these little things that we look at, like we ask about ENT history and airway history as well. Like we want to mm-hmm. know like, you been? Is there a history of ear infections? Is there, a, do they have PE tubes in their ears? Do you know, have they had tonsils or adenoids removed? Um, what, what's medication history look like? You know, all, have they been hospitalized? You know, all these questions that like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of other, you know, speech therapists may not always ask. We may ask some, but not yeah. all. We really dive deep because we're trying to look holistically at that whole child and figure out like, mm-hmm. are we even the best, like, yes, we want to do an eval at least, but are we the best, like, first line provider right now, or do we need to like work with a team to get you on track somewhere else first or along with what we're doing? Right. That is a huge thing for me. Um, And I I feel like it's important for us to know, especially locally, the people that we can connect patients and families with. Um, I will see, I have been known to have pelvic health patients coming in with pelvic pain. And I ask that question about, oh, you know, are you, have you had any issues with your TMJ? And they're like, oh yeah, you know, I've cracked three teeth. Um, I definitely, like, I definitely grind at night. I've ground through three, uh, you know, bite guards. And so I, I keep a list of, all right, so take this for what it's worth. You know, I realize this is not in my scope as a PT, but we know through research that X, Y, and Z are connected. Here's a list of people that you may want to consult with. And I feel like that, um, so I have, even as a, a physical therapist, you know, it's like that silo of staying in my lane, but I will tell people, all right, I know of like some great myofunctional therapists. I know of some craniosacral therapists. Um, you know, you may want to get assessed for X, Y, or Z, and this is why. And again, like going back to that knowledge is power, at the very least, it's, you can put a bug into someone's ear because how many patients have you talked to or families that have heard from someone, oh, this isn't connected. Mm-hmm. You know, um, people will come in with like nerve tension in their arms and the doctor's like, oh, that's not connected with your scoliosis. I'm like, yeah, but your trunk is rotated and those nerves are being stretched. 
Yeah. Of course it's connected. Yeah. So, no, 100%. So how, so do you work with mostly adults or do you see any pediatrics? I see um, a fair, I, I see about probably more teens, like older peds, but I, I have treated, of course, my own son at uh, five, but I have treated four five and six year olds with um, teaching them their, their scoliosis corrections. That's amazing. Um, it's so hard to find like PTs in this space who work with like the younger pediatrics and who really mm, get so airway. And, you know, you have an even like deeper specialty with the scoliosis side of things. So that's, that's amazing. Now, when you work with them, are you, um, are you, that you're collaborating with other professionals, but as far as like mm -hmm. treatment planning and everything goes, like, do they come see you like once a week? Are you doing like kind of traditional, like semi-traditional PT type exercises? Or I know you said there's a certain methodology you use for scoliosis patients, but like, I'm just curious, like mm -hmm. what, not super familiar with it, but like what sure. that entails or like looks like to so the best that you can explain it, obviously on a podcast. <laughs> right. Um, I feel like we, part of the issue is our, um, I, because I run a a specialty practice with my business partner. We, there's three of us therapists that do this very specialized scoliosis um, exercise. And unfortunately that we don't have the, the availability even to get people in once a week for wow. when, when children are um, growing and we know there's that those risk of worsenings as we grow, um, I usually recommend, okay, try to get in every week, every other week. But then of course they will leave from at their first session we will take them through, not the evaluation, but the first treatment session. We will take them through their entire exercise program and they will get a video and they will get handouts. They get all of the resources ahead of time. In an ideal world, I would love to be able to see my patients, especially that are in those periods of growth once a week. Um, it's not feasible where we are right now. Um, we are always recruiting. So if you know anyone that wants to get trained in, in Shroth exercise, that would be great. Um, but part of my job is to encourage them. Like we know the research shows that doing the Shroth exercises are most um, effective if you can do them daily for 15 minutes. And so we know that times of growth are more, uh, there's more of a risk of progression. So especially for, I see a lot of girls in my practice that are in those teenage years. And we know those first two years, like after someone starts their first menstrual period, they have, um, uh, they have more of a risk of curve progression because there's those growth spurts. So part of my job is just encouraging, empowering them that they need to take this on because this is a chance that a lot of us did not get. We know that we can positively impact the spine with these exercises and the muscle balance throughout the lifespan but to get the best possible correction and encourage growth in the right direction, we really want to nail this while they're growing. Yeah, um, no, that, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. No, thank you. That's, it's helpful. It's, it's um, definitely something, like I said, it's hard to find professionals that are in certain specialty yeah. spaces. So maybe somebody's listening that's interested. Maybe they'll reach out to you and that. <laughs> well, I do know I... Um, I love Instagram because I find like, I, I find the best professionals on Instagram, but there are some Shroth therapists in, uh, like, I, I don't know. I, I think there is one in South Florida that I'm connected with, but, okay. um, definitely should connect with her because I am finding that it's probably good to screen these kiddos for scoliosis because I feel like there is a relationship, especially yeah. if they have a lot of, um, 
preference one side, stabilization of one side of the jaw versus the other. So, yeah. So if, if there is like a professional listening, who's like wondering how you're doing your screens, you know, for um, Mm -hmm. like they're working with pelvic floor patients and you had mentioned screening for like TMJ and airway concerns. So they know like when to refer out and everything. Um, Is it mostly through like your intake that you're doing that? Or do you have like a specific way that you screen beyond intake? Um, I try to get as much info as possible during the intake because I feel like that helps to just save time. Because as you know, even if you have the privilege of seeing somebody one-on-one, which my practice model allows for that, there's just so much to cover. And of course you want to give space for people to tell their story. So I don't always get through everything in the first session, but for me, I have like a little, I guess, flow sheet in my brain or um, what they call it algorithm where I say, okay, if they said yes to this question, I can think of all these other things. So yeah, I try to have a really specific intake. I've tried to determine from all of the providers that I work with the red flags that they're seeing. And I try to determine, and this is still something that I could use some like some research or um, knowledge in, is knowing what comes first. Because I feel like None of us know because we treat in silos. Um, none of us know what started, like what's the driving force. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like the more information you know in the beginning and having that wide net of resources can only help the patients and the people that we work with. 100%. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so I think we, we got a little extra time. So let's talk about some of the other things we wanted to chat on. If we, we said, if we had enough time, um, one <laughs> of the things was like jaw tension, right. And positioning yes. and how that can either help or hurt, right. Or ability, um, to have a baby or even a healthy bowel movement. Yes. <laughs> to that, Cause I'm like, I think that's a fun topic. <laughs> It, I, I mean, I do too. I realize I'm a little bit biased, but <laughs> um, so, so anyone on here that has ever had a baby or tried, you know, prepared to have a baby, there's um, any number of, if you've followed any of the natural childbirthing, I don't know, books, resources, you may be familiar with the name Ina Mae Gaskin. Um, she is, she actually, I mean, this was gosh, years and years ago. But she started to bring awareness to the fact that if you have tension in your jaw, you can't, you can't have an open cervix, right? Those pelvic floor muscles, which their main job is to get out of the way. Like people yeah. think, <laughs> people think they need to do a lot of kegels and stuff for um, childbirth, but no, actually those pelvic floor muscles need to like lengthen. They need to release. They need to allow for baby to come through. So that's their job. Um, but they can't do their job if we're clenched down up here. Like they just can't, um, they can't release the way they need to. And that can lead to more bad outcomes for mom. That could lead to tearing. That could lead to more like inflammation. That could lead to more prolonged birthing times and longer pushing times. Um, so Hi, yeah. Me. You're describing me. I mean, yeah. I, Hello. <laughs> my first daughter like before I fell more into like a natural world and everything um of like homeopathy I do a lot of homeopathy now with my kids and Mm -hmm. just trying to like you know a lot of chronic issues and things I'm trying to like do you know homeopathy Mm -hmm. for um anyways I clearly had jaw tension and didn't Mm. real I mean I knew that I was clenching my jaw I knew that it was partially my bite um but I don't think I realized it all until like 
after I had my first child. And then I actually mm-hmm. went to my trained PT between kids. And I was like, Hey, before I get pregnant again, I want to work through like my diaphragm. I just, I was like, I know, love that. Was, like release like the chest muscles and breathe better. Mm-hmm. And, and I even had people say like, you don't walk like a pregnant woman. Like you don't, you look like you, you just look chill. Like you look like you're, and I was, I was fine with my second. My first was tricky. Like we had, I was like heavily monitored. They weren't sure that my Mm. uterus was the right shape or enough space for her. And then it was fine. But then because they were monitoring us and maternal fetal, then I was going a lot towards the end and they thought I had gestational diabetes, but I didn't. I actually have um, an intolerance to like, I couldn't process the glucose drink they gave me. And Mm. like, I I couldn't process corn very well at the time. It was like a food sensitivity. So I passed like hour one and two, but not hour three on the three hour test they sent me for. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just, it was like a whole thing. So (laughs) then I was doing that and I was like, you know, pricking my finger and everything. And I'm like, I can literally eat. And I just, I wasn't eating this way during pregnancy, but I tried it because I wanted to test it. I could eat a slice of pizza. I could eat a bowl of ice cream. And I still, my blood, my blood sugar didn't spike over like the levels Mm. that they said that they should have at that point. So I was like, I don't think I actually have this problem, but whatever. Mm, there was that. Yeah. So then I was monitored. So then she was <laughs> monitored after birth. So I didn't have it with my second one because then they let me actually like bananas or something that I could process and I was fine. Um, mm. Yeah. I like advocate <laughs> a lot for like after learning a lot with my first. Yeah. My second, I was like, we don't yeah. have monitored. And then because I was being monitored so much, they, towards the end, they were like, well, the baby's, you know, not getting enough. Um, nutrients to her belly. It's all going to her brain through the umbilical cord. So we might need to deliver early. And mm. eventually they were like, okay, no, we think it's okay now. And so whatever. Right. So it's like all these things yeah. that you would normally know. So I feel like I, I, I'm a person where, you know, at least at that time in my life where when I have these big unknowns, especially like yeah. medical related, like it doesn't matter how many, if I take a class or I read a book, until I experienced it myself, like, I think I was so tense over the, mm. the childbirth that okay. I, which I mean, I, t- to be fair, it is, it's a very anxiety. I mean, <laughs> to downplay childbirth or anything. Right. But I'm like, I think I was just carrying so much tension and I was also driving a lot to see patients and like traffic yeah. is something that causes tension. That I know I would clench in traffic. And so by the time they sent me in, to deliver this baby, they, um, I had a planned, uh, what's it called? Um, induction. Induction. Thank you. Yes. So (laughs) planned induction we call and they're like, Oh, we don't have a bed. And I, I was so like Mm. at the time. And like, I've, I've changed a lot my children have changed me a lot. Um, but I was so, (laughs) no, like it is happening tonight. (laughs) Like I, like, I just was like, I'm like, there's very little I can control in this scenario, but that I, so anyways, I ended up going in Mm. I needed to get to a bed until like 1am. Like I didn't go until like midnight, got into a bed at 1am. They put in like Cervidil. It didn't work. Mm. Ripen. They started Pitocin at 8am after they took Cervidil out. They had me on like 18 out of 20, nothing was happening. I, I was contracting. My cervix was not opening. So when you just said that, I was like, yeah, oh, oh my goodness, would you look at that? Because also when I you know, know it's coming, right? What does your body do? If you know, you can anticipate like a contraction coming, you like, like yeah, so yeah. <laughs> finally at like, I don't know, my water broke the middle of the afternoon. They were like, okay, now we have to deliver the baby. They were going to stop and restart everything. I was like, no, you are not. So then thank goodness my water broke because they were like, okay, now we have to continue. Um, and I finally was like, give me an epidural. Like, I'm just, I'm done. Like, give me an epidural. Yeah. And yeah. they 
I think at that point it had been like, see, like one, one, like 15 hours ish. Mm. And so, yeah, so they gave me the epidural. I fell asleep and woke Mm -hmm. up zero to seven centimeters in 30 minutes. Yep. Yep. You want to know why? Cause your yep. nervous system chilled the heck out. That's why yeah. you allowed yep. her to come down. <laughs> long, long labor and delivery. We I pushed for a long time with the first one. It was like, I tore, I mean, all the things, like everything you said. Yeah. Well, well, but, but again, me. like who knows? No one tells you. I feel like the OBs, like I, I am a huge advocate now for doulas. And, um, that prep, like that prep, um, birthing work, I feel like is so important. Uh, but similarly, so even if, even if someone chooses not to have a baby, we all, whether we want to or not have to have a bowel movement. And so I work, (laughs) so, um, I, you know, I've seen in my son, you know, he's, he's had some issues. I work with a lot of scoliosis patients and pelvic health patients that have issues and, um, So part of it, I do believe like there's tension that we're working through, but also it's the same idea of if you're holding a lot of tension in your jaw and if you're bearing down, then those pelvic floor muscles are being stressed, like stressed essentially. And they're not allowed to relax because they're supposed to allow, again, get out of the way when you're having poop. So I, um, one of the big things I tell in all of the different environments where I work, but um, I'm always telling people like, are you or do you have a soft jaw? Can you make a little soft sound as you're having a bowel movement, like a or a and and trying to instead of like, you know, vapor locking and not breathing to allow them to actually pass something. Um, so even just from a mechanical perspective, like some things are also great, like squatty potties or having your feet up and not you know being up on your toes on the toilet, but like allowing if we can relax the jaw that can relax everything in the pelvis a little bit too. So like, why not make our lives easier in that teeny tiny way? (laughs) No, I mean, both my kids have had struggles with it at one point or another, and I wrote it Mm. off to their ties. Um, Mm. And it would, again, this would, could all be interconnected, right? The airway with the ties, Mm -hmm. with with my second is a grinder. She has such a deep bite that, you know, for her, um, you know, I would always like kind of joke and kind of not really joke. I'm like, if they don't have something green <laughs> at least once or twice a day, like green beans or broccoli or something like that, which mm-hmm. they both love. So thank goodness, like my kids will eat that. Then they would get constipated. Um, if they mm-hmm. eat mac and cheese, they get constipated. So like, I look at things where I'm like, I think there's mm-hmm. certain foods that don't pass through their bodies well, or they're not chewing them well enough to break them down to pass yep. through their bodies well. Um, that's my son. <laughs> Yeah, because of their current, and that's that's really what it comes down to with a lot of our feeding patients. So many of them learn like, I eat this food, I love it, but I don't feel good afterwards because yep. they're not able to chew it properly, or they love it so much that they don't care. They'll swallow it whole, even if it makes them feel crappy yep. afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very fascinating to work with kids and see like you know in feeding therapy like these these patterns and how, you know, but also how few professionals actually look at the foods that kids are eating as well as whether or not they can actually chew the foods. And, you know, if a child doesn't feel safe, guess what's going to happen? They're going to cut that food out. So guess what's harder to chew? Things that are fibrous. Guess what we need in our diet? Things that are fibrous. Uh Like, you know. Yeah, it's so frustrating. And I feel like a lot of pediatricians, I, I admire everything they do, but I do feel like 
we have a great pediatrician. He doesn't, he, he missed my son's first like school on his scoliosis screening. He, he missed that there was a little imbalance. He wrote off my concerns about the tongue tie for my daughter. And like, this is, this is a very, you know, well-respected yeah. pediatrician, but just, you know, again, we're at silos. We don't, yes. we don't know about the connectivity of our bodies and yeah. to our detriment. Yeah. Right. And it's, it can be frustrating to no end because you're like, I get DM'd on Instagram all the time. And I have parents being like, well, why didn't my pediatrician tell me this? And I'm like, well, they're not trained to like, they are, you know, they have a lot to cover and not a lot of time. And, you know, we love our pediatricians. Mm -hmm. We can't expect them to become specialists and everything. However, we can expect that they listen to parent concerns and they refer out as needed. Right. And that there's, conversation happening. And, and so I think it then falls on a lot of us to try to go and talk to our pediatricians and ask for like a lunch and learn or to, you know, Hey, can we sit down for 20 minutes and talk about patterns that we're seeing in our patients? So, you know, when to refer to us, um, because, you know, arguably I, I love when people come to me and they do that because I would rather someone come and say, Hey, like you were saying before, like you've learned Mm -hmm. about the red flags, you, you know, the symptoms to look for, to refer Mm -hmm. out to certain people certain other specialists, um, which is the way we operate too. And so we will happily add another line or two on the intake. If that mm-hmm. helps, oh, that, you know what, we need to have a conversation with a pediatrician or a PT or an osteopath or, or, you know, an airway dentist yeah. or whatever. Um, because again, it's, it's, it's hard. And the best thing that we can do really, I think is understand what each of us does so that we know right. when to prefer. Right. And understanding when, because none of us have a full picture. None of us have full knowledge. And I don't think any of us ever will um, because the body is so complex, but I just love like that Maya, Maya Angela quote of like, do the best you can until you know better Then when you know better, do better. And I feel like as long as you can approach a provider with an open mind, as long as they're conducive to what you say, I mean, I've worked, I've had developed fabulous um, relationships with a lot of doctors where we collaborate and we say, Hey, you know, could you screen this person? And it's just a matter of if you can approach it in a way and you can be, you know, not come at them from an accusatory, like, Hey, you know, this is, this is something you need to be looking at, but to bring the awareness to, I think that these things might be connected. I'm noticing in my patients, or I've seen this research that this could be a link. And then if it's a provider that's willing to have that discussion with you, then that's only going to help all of the patients. Absolutely. Well, this has been amazing. I always love talking with professionals who are on the same page. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to talk about? Um, I don't think so. I, um, I breathing, I feel like it all comes back to breathing. So I loved, I loved James Nestor's book breath. I feel like everybody should read it. Um, and I feel like a good diaphragmatic breathing, like just learning how to activate the, like to expand the rib cage and to breathe from the diaphragm and relax everything that's not supposed to be helping for two minutes a day is helpful for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I have lots of videos and connections on my Instagram if anybody is ever interested in that. And I'm happy to chat and help refer people to, especially if you live in the Atlanta area. I know a lot of, um, a lot of excellent providers around here. Yep. And you are at laura.g.dpt, right? On Instagram? Yes. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, we will link that and we'll, we'll include that in the, um, 
your website in the show notes. Everybody knows where to find you. And thank you so much again for hanging out today and chatting about pelvic floor and you know, airway and, <laughs> and, poops and, and poops and yep, all and the things. Fine, all this. <laughs> it was a pleasure. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 